So 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm reading from the ESV. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, they say to be an expert, you need to be, uh, have a briefcase and be one plane flight from home. So I guess that makes me an expert. Uh, I don't think of myself as an expert on church planting, very much just working it out as I go. Uh, but I have had the opportunity to be involved in a lot, of, uh, a lot of different stuff and see a lot of different stuff, particularly the last maybe three years. Uh, what I'd like to do today is, in this session, to try and give you a, like a paradigm, if you like, to think about church planting and why we need to do it. And then the next two sessions, really, um, question and answer, comment, backwards and forwards, uh, and so on. If you're in this room, uh, I'm assuming it's because you want to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus. And we want to hear him say one day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want. Um, Now, I think usually or often in the circles that I've moved in and those that believe Reformed theology, uh, to be faithful is often interpreted as, I've held the line theologically. Yeah? Um, just like Dave read to us then in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And I've, I've gone for the um, ESV because that translates pistos uh, the right way here, faithful. We'll have it on the, yeah, the verses I'm looking at will be on the screen. So you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men... I think it's anthropos, faithful people, who will be able to teach others also. And so to be faithful is to be doctrinally pure and hold the line. Uh, And and we've got to do that, absolutely. If you want to be faithful, you've got to hold the line theologically. But I've come to understand there's actually more to being faithful than just doing that. We've got to do that and we must do it. But there's more to being faithful than just doing that. Uh, In fact kind of the irony, if you like, the very phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, comes from a part of the Bible that shows us the extra that, that's involved. Okay. Uh, does anyone remember where well done, good and faithful servant comes from? <laughs> Have you done? <laughs> it's, hard to get, uh, it's hard to get good help, isn't it? Uh, well done, Scott. Okay. Yeah, of course, it comes from the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Now, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to that, uh, that'd be good. Or Scott will, probably a little earlier than he needs to, get that up on the screen. Now, do you want to put it up on the screen, mate? What, our, what the Lord does in Matthew 25, he talks about the essentials of what it means to be faithful. Because uh, he said, you know, it's all about being well done, good and faithful servant. Let's read it and, and see the implications of that. And then what's it got to do with church planting and so on? Okay. Uh, Matthew 25. 
Verse 14. Again, I'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, uh, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So, of course, the, the it there is the kingdom of God, as Jesus is teaching uh, in various parables. And the idea of the context is the Lord goes away, or the Lord gives gifts and so on to his servants, goes away, and he will come back. Now, the talents here, like in, in uh, New Testament terms, talent is just money. Or it's, or it's even a weight of precious uh, metal, like gold and so on. Uh, as I looked it up, a talent was 34.3 kilograms uh, of gold or, or silver. Now, if it's gold, that's 75 pounds. And last time I checked, gold was at about um, $1,700 an ounce. If you do the, the figures and work it out, in today's money, a talent equals very close to $2 million dollars. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, you see, to one, he gave $10 million. To another, he gave $8 million. To another, he gave $2 million. Jesus could have said, he gave one denarius, two denarius, three denarius, $150, $300, $450. No, 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 he says he gave $10 million, $8 million. What's he saying? He's given something of incredible value. That's the point. And I think here's, here's what I've... Also think, that is, it's not just the gospel. Why? Because they get different amounts. No one gets more of the gospel than it. But I think he's talking about, well, what it's come to mean, talents. He, what he's given them is um, opportunities, resources, gifts, abilities, and so on, but differing amounts to different people. They all get a great value, but they just get differing amounts. So what happens? Verse 16. The man who received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. Verse 18, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents bought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So these servants have been faithful. Now, what is it that they've done? Uh, You notice... One's actually gained five talents, one's gained two talents. So it's not about ultimate result. What is it they did to be faithful? Anyone want to have a, they, in Australian terms, they had a go. Yeah, that's it. They had a go. They tried. They did their best. Um, one gained, and notice that the one that gains five and the one that gains two get exactly the same praise. Well done. Come into your master's happiness. And then here's the sharp end, verse 24. And the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now listen to what the master said. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, 
I would have received it back with interest. What's, what's the problem? He's held the deposit. He's kept the thing. You know, give it back to the Lord. And notice, notice he gets called wicked and lazy. Right? Or even it can be translated evil and lazy. Very strong words. What's the point? He didn't even have a go. He didn't use his opportunity to serve his master. And why is the master so angry? Notice what it says about the way he thought of his master. See what it says? I knew that you are a hard man. And and in what sense? Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. Now, what's he afraid of? He's not afraid of getting a beating. or He's afraid of what? I do all of this work and gain all of this and you would take it from me. He's afraid that he'd do all the work and the master would be hard and grasping rather than generous, which is absolutely the opposite of the character. In fact, uh, in a similar parable, kind of the parallel parable, if you like, um, in Luke's gospel, it's the master gives cities, gives the servants cities to be in charge of. And so what's the point? There's no risk, there's no sweat, there's no courage, there's no trust, nothing. He just sits on his talent, okay? And you see, uh, the master is generous, but he absolutely expects servants to get busy serving him. Verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what do you do with that? Um, I... I don't think it's a. I don't think it's it's right to say it's a salvation issue. You know, if you don't get busy serving, you know, you still say by, by grace alone, by faith alone. But you've got to say from that parable, the Lord takes serving Him very seriously. Okay. And what does it mean to be faithful? Well, it means we held the truth. Yes, we held doctrine straight. But it also means I've had a go. I've done the best I could with the opportunities, the gifts, the abilities You've given me. I've I've done my best. Now, the results are, are up to Jesus, of course. You know, 1 Corinthians 3 and so on. The results are up to Jesus, but the question is, did you have a go? I, I can't see any other way around that. I think that is what he's teaching in this parable. I did everything I could um, to honour the Lord Jesus, to see people hear about him and so on. Um, it's like 1 Corinthians 9, which we'll look at later on, where Paul says, I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Um, now, I guess the question for us is, and most of us are Christian leaders or will be in leadership positions, the question is, are we being faithful? Are you holding to the truth? Are you having a go? Um, and it's not, it's not performance-based, it's not how much have you achieved or how many, what are the results. It's are you using your gifts, your opportunities as best you can. Um, and what's it got to do with church planting and so on? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed there's been, there's been um, uh, a fair bit of kind of talk in different blogs and books and whatever about uh, what's the mission of the church. And uh, there's, there's good, solid, reformed people who are kind of arguing about it. So I think kind of in the last... In the last year or so, um, an article by, by Philip Jensen in The Briefing. I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine, The Briefing. Yeah, there's a few nods, okay. Um, and what Philip was saying is, let me see if I can get it right, um, uh, Philip's saying 
the church exists as an end in herself um, and therefore we should uh, get busy and evangelise and make disciples to build the church. And then there's uh, the other book out by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert called The Mission of the Church, which is actually, I think, a very good book, a lot of really helpful stuff in it. And they're saying the mission of the church is to evangelise and make disciples. Now, there's a subtle difference in there, but on the ground, almost no difference in terms of what, they, what those two views would be on about. Um, I think as believers, we want to be on about telling people uh, about Jesus and making disciples in whatever gifts and op- with whatever gifts and opportunities uh, the Lord's given us. And don't we want our churches to be able to welcome people and be a place where people will hear the gospel, be, um, you know, be evangelised, uh, be brought to commitment to Christ, be matured and, and so on. Um, and I think, what do we want for our churches in terms of having a go? Well, we don't want our churches to be outsider-driven. I think that's a mistake that people have made. But we want our churches to be outsider-accessible, not to be strange. Isn't that, I think that's what it is. Um, uh, it's like in 1 Corinthians 14, I'll just, I'll just read it to you, you may not need to look at about we're saying, yeah, look, if you all speak in tongues, it'll just seem, well, I'll read it to you, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and you all speak in tongues um, and an outsider and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Yep, they will. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all and the secrets of his heart will be disclosed. And, you know, Revelation 20, the, the spirit of... Um, uh, the testimony to Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. You might argue about exactly what prophecy is, but it's certainly speaking the word of God so that people can understand it. You want an outsider to be able to understand the gospel and hear that as they, as they walk in. So somewhere they'll hear the truth, they'll be convicted about it. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we love you so much. We wanted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We want our churches to be places like this. My guess is it's all been motherhood and apple pie so far for you, right? If you didn't agree with this, you wouldn't be here. But I'll tell you what the really sad thing is, and I get to travel around a bit, and I'm sure you'd be aware of it. Why is it that so many churches are not like that? Why is it that you have so many churches either you won't hear the gospel or you won't be welcomed or they're not friendly or, or a combination of all of them? Um, here's... Here's my little theory, and it's a little bit reductionist, but I think it's right. You've got, uh, you've got two elements to, uh, forgive me, reductionist, but you've got two elements to the way the churches work. One is the theology, the truth that we believe. The other is the culture in which we operate. Every church, we have, a, we have our culture. Sometimes it might even be kind of invisible to us because it's, we're so used to it. It's like our worldview, we can't see it. But our culture includes the way we do things, do you have a liturgy or not, the language that you use, the way that you dress, the furniture, the building, uh, and so on. And what happens in in church life in terms of... uh, We get it mixed up in terms of what's changeable and what's not. Our theology shouldn't change, but our culture should be be flexible. and it gets messed up. Here's, here's a whole lot of different, there's a whole lot of different ways. Like, for example, um, liberalism. 
Liberalism always comes in in the basis of we need to be relevant to the society that's, that's around us. Okay? So you kind of, um, you know, you walk, as someone said earlier on, you're walking, um, you get a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. The trouble is with liberalism, the newspaper takes over and it's done in the name of, you know, in the name of relevance. So what happens? As soon as you do that and your theology slides, you need something to hang on to, so you start hanging on to your culture. And that's why around the place, in all sorts of churches around the place, you've got men dressed up in crazy, you know, frocks from the Middle Ages doing kind of irrelevant, get that mouthful, irrelevant ceremonies and so on in empty buildings when they don't actually kind of believe the gospel properly anymore, but they've got to hold on to these medieval things that they're doing and, yeah. Or sometimes culture and theology get welded together. Now, I need to tread gently here. You guys might tar and feather me, but I... Mm. Um, what can happen is uh, you can have beautiful Reformed theology, but you can have it welded to 17th century Scottish culture. All right? And, well, you, you can. I tread gently here, and that is... Um, Scott, just make a note. This is the one we're going to delete, all right? Uh, I didn't understand a particular church until I went to the Scottish Isles and I saw where the church came from. And I understand that the way they're doing ministry now is exactly the same in terms of culture as it was in 18th century Isle of Skye. And that is... Why ever would you want to have a tea and coffee together after church? Because we're going to see each other bumping into each other in the village all the time, all week. Why would you hold small Bible study groups? We see each other all. In 21st century Australia, the culture's got to be totally different. Do you see? So culture and theology get fused together. And after a while, people can't tell the difference. Um, well, we have to do this because we've always done it that way. And it, anyway. Or... Um, uh, or your theology can, can get, well, you can almost stop believing your own theology and end up, here's the one that will end up with me with the feathers, but you, you can end up hyper-Calvinist in practice. And that is you actually stop evangelising because you move so far down the doctrine of election that you forget what the other half of the Apostle Paul was on about all the time. Or another, or another problem is... Um, people end up running church, church light, L-I-T-E. Um, and that is you, you, you actually are so selective in what you preach on or teach on, you leave all the hard subjects out. It's called almost liberalism by the back door. So you don't preach on hell, you don't preach on judgment, you don't preach on the complementarian issue about women and leadership and so on. Um, and you run church meetings that are about kind of six tips to cope with stress or five tips to help your marriage or, and I think what we've seen over the last few decades is church, uh, church light leads to disciples light. No, I, what you need, what we need, I think, is not a church that's not outsider-driven but outsider-friendly. And that, there's a, there's a big difference, sorry, let me put it. Uh, with small, deliberate changes, you can make a huge difference as to how accessible your church meetings are to outsiders. That's, that's what I mean. Um, I'll give you an example. If you're in, if you're in a church and you stand up and say, oh, we're going to have an evangelistic event, blah, 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 
even if there's no non-Christians present, what you've said to every Christian there is, I'm glad I didn't bring my friends to church this week. Um, uh, If you stand up and say, oh, let's pray for us Christians in the workforce, uh, you've actually said this is just a club only for Christians. Non-Christians aren't welcome to come along. Um, I know. I remember one um, one young guy in a church plant stood up and talked about to the group, the twenty people in the church in the building. He talked to them about their missional communities and the aim to reach non Christians and how it all worked and everything. And this was in their regular church meeting. They'd only been going for a month or so. Now I said to him, "Mate, you just talked about kind of evangelism, non Christians." Or he said, "It's all right. I knew everyone in the room. They were all Christian. They were kind of core group." I said, "Yeah, but what you just said to all twenty of them was." don't bring your non-Christian friends because the pastor's going to stand up and say something that's really embarrassing and kind of weird. And okay, So you've actually got to, you've got to think through how do we run church for the people who aren't there. Now, I'm not saying change what we pray about, what we teach about. You teach the whole counsel of God and so on. But it, with a small change, you can make church really accessible. All right. And I think also, I might say later on, I'll talk later on, I think we need to learn to preach. We've got to work on learn to preach to two groups. Because every time you open the Scriptures, the Scriptures teach, speak to believers and to unbelievers. And I, I think we can do it. I really, um, I don't know what percentage or if that's a way to think, you know, 70, 30 or whatever it is. But you've got to, every time you open the Bible, you should be opening the Bible and speaking to unbelievers as well. Um, okay. And that doesn't mean finishing every sermon with John 3.16. Uh, there's, there's other ways to do that. All right, now, what's all of this got to do? Being faithful, um, trying to reach as many people as possible. What kind of churches do we want? We'll finally get to church planting. Uh, our American brothers with their statistics and so on, uh, uh, we've got lots to learn from our American brothers. Um, just need to remember we're in a different culture. But um, uh, I think it was Peter Wagner, the church growth guru, said, uh, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. Uh, I think he's right. And it's been done in Australia before. Uh, the whole church planting thing, it's not, it's not new. Let me tell you about a couple of uh, interesting uh, examples. This is for the Baptist churches. In, 1800, in the 1800s, um, uh, like kind of leading up through the 1800s, the Baptists in New South Wales, I'm not sure why, but they had a really slow start. So... At the turn of the century, about 1900, there were as many Baptists in New South Wales as there were in Tasmania. Okay. Um, we got, oh yeah, okay, uh, as Tasmania. Now, what the Baptists did in 1900 was uh, to appoint this man, A.J. Waldock, uh, with a serious goatee, uh, uh, he and his family there, they appointed him head of their home missions uh, group. Now, what he did... He focused on deliberate planting of new churches or new mission stations, as they called them, and they changed their home mission committee policy from propping up ineffective ministries that would normally have died to investing in growth and so on. Now, what happened? It's not miraculous growth at one level, like, so not spectacular immediate growth. It took four decades and they tripled the number of Baptist people in New South Wales. You go, oh, well, would it have happened anyone? Well, no. At the same time, the, um, the number of Baptist people in Victoria stayed the same. New South Wales tripled over those 40 years. Okay. Or a different one, 
1977, Andrew Evans. I have a picture of Andrew Evans. I've never met this man. He lives in South Australia. He was elected National Superintendent of the Assemblies of God. I think the AOGs now call themselves Australian Christian Churches. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Now, there's all sorts of theological differences. I, I, but let me just tell you what they did. These guys love Jesus. They preach about him and so on. They set targets about planting churches. This is what Andrew Evans says, what he did. In my 20 years as national superintendent, we planted a new church about every 10 days. That's 680 churches. Now, there's all sorts of collateral damage and um, they sent people out without assessing them properly and so on. Um, as my dad said, you know, they, my dad would say about people, they didn't test their eyes, they counted them um, about whether you were suitable. But I tell you something, they had a go. 680 and, and dramatic growth. Now, I understand that for different reasons, the growth has slowed down now, but huge growth. And you might not agree with them, I don't, you might not agree with them with a whole lot of different theology, but they were prepared to do whatever it took. But you notice the difference? It was 40 years with the Baptists and 20 years with the AOGs, and they saw this massive growth. Now, why do we need... See, people say to me, why do we need new churches? Or why do we need to plant new churches? And I've realised that's the wrong question. Here's the right question. Why did we ever stop? Why did we stop planting new churches? Because, I'm about to make a profound statement, you ready? Every church in Australia began as a church plant. That, 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 that was worth the price of admission, wasn't it? Okay, it was. Every church in Australia began as a church plant. And I'll tell you what else. They began with energy and vision and enthusiasm to reach the people around them. We just forget that they were church plants because we built them out of brick or, may the Lord forgive us, sandstone. Uh, uh, yeah, why have we did that? I don't know. <laughs> now, um, why do we need new churches? Especially, people say, why do we need new churches when our current churches aren't full? Um, I, the answer, I wanted to try and um, give you a paradigm. If you're interested in church planning, you may need to speak to and explain to people why do we need new churches. Here's my way of trying to explain it. It's not immediately from the, well, it's not from the scriptures. Uh, I think what it does is try and make sense of the way our world works, if you like. Here's, let me just tell you and you, you weigh it up. I think I've noticed that our churches grow old the way that our bodies grow old. This is just a way of explaining it. The churches grow old the way our bodies grow old. And you can pick, if you know what you're looking for, you can pick an old church. All right. Now, I, now, now some congregations are tiny and the average age is 80 years old and so on, and yep, they're obviously old. But you can even have a church that's quite strong, that has quite a few people, but it's growing old. Now, let me show you how churches grow old and um, uh, why we need new, young, energetic churches. And I'm not talking necessarily about the age of the people in the churches. I mean the age of the, the congregation. Um, I've got eight ways, and you can fill it in in the outline if you like. And um, each of these eight ways means or points to the fact that we need to start new, young churches. Okay, The first one's this. Um, as you grow older, as your body grows older, you begin to lose vision. Right? You need to 
Actually, it's a cruel irony. About the time you need your glasses, you start to forget where you put them, I think. It just, anyway, that's the way life is. Um, uh, churches, churches begin with vision and energy. We're going to build this building. We're going to raise this money. We're going to do this thing, what, to reach these people or reach this suburb and so on. And as churches grow older, that vision can begin to dim. And guess what? We, we become content with being the church that cares for its members. Right? We care for one another and we've been here a long time and that's good and that's and is a good thing. But the, the vision to reach people and go do it, just, it just shrinks down to we look after us and the families here and so on. New churches begin with renewed vision. Okay? Second one, a loss of um, flexibility. As we get older and physically, we, we get physically and mentally less flexible. Okay? Um, it's just harder to touch your toes. It's harder to it just everything kind of seizes up a bit and so on. And as churches grow older, they get less flexible about what they're doing. Um, I'll, I'll say it again and again. Uh, if you'll if you'll stay in the room and listen, I'll say it again and again. Um, the two biggest human factors by a mile, the two biggest human factors in church growth are leadership and a willingness to change. They're, they're the two by a mile. I know the sovereign God gives growth as he chooses and real conversion only comes from him. But at a human level, leadership and a willingness to change. Almost every church wants to grow. I've talked to the leadership of dozens and dozens of churches. Do you want to grow? Yes. Do you want to change? No. And you won't grow unless you're prepared to change. Um, and, and you get told, we've always done it this way. Um, you know, what, you, you think about the level of change. You think about how much of a drama in so many churches, how much of a drama it is just to move the furniture around, you know, to change the pews. Um, as one of my mates had this ongoing battle with, the, with his church about, about trying to change the, the pews in the church. And uh, they were really uncomfortable and people couldn't sit in them and so on and so on. And then finally, his church building burned down. And uh, I thought, hmm. And then I found out that not long before, he'd had the pews moved out and put into storage. So the pews survived. <laughs> it also meant he didn't set the fire. Um, yeah. Or even, or even uh, some of, one of the churches I've been to for a while, you try changing the order of when you sing a song or sing a hymn and when the Bible reading is and when the prayer is, you get a mutiny on your hands. We just don't change things. Now, at a bit, that's even just at a little level, but at a, at a kind of a, a, church, a church life, life experience, how can I put it? In terms of over decades, here's a story, for example. In the St. George area of Sydney, up near where I come from, in the 1950s and 60s, once the baby boomers began to, uh, were, once the baby boomers were born after the Second World War, huge churches around that area. There's a legend of one particular church that had uh, hired a train for a Sunday school picnic and took a thousand people on this Sunday school picnic. Okay, that's in the 1950s. By the time you get to the late 1990s, on that particular site with huge buildings and all that kind of thing, there's tumbleweeds on the weekend. There's just, there's, you know, you can hear crickets. There's three little old ladies and a dog kind of there. Why? How would you go from like a thousand to just to, did they go liberal? Did they? No. I'll tell you what happened. The suburb all around them changed. 
and you had immigration and you had people from the Middle East or particularly Asian people move in and this Anglo enclave just, they couldn't change to adapt to the suburb around them and so the church just slowly, inevitably died. Um, Yeah, but churches grow old, they, like our bodies, lose flexibility. Comfort. I might, I'll just hit the fast forward button, you guys will get it really quickly. But comfort, uh, as you get older, your creature comforts become uh, more important to you and so on. And I'll tell you something, as church life goes on, churches easily move into the comfort zone. And what we want is we want uh, nice events, we want uh, well-organised youth groups for our kids, we want our pastors visiting us, we want our friends around us, and we want church to be a nice, pleasant, comfortable experience. And if you're in a declining church, guess what? Palliative care is comfortable in church life. It is. Palliative care is about removing pain. Death in church life is comfortable, slow, orderly and neat. We're with our friends. We're doing what we always wanted to do. We slowly sell off the farm and it's comfortable. And new churches are lean and hungry and prepared to step out of their comfort zone. Fourth one, loss of urgency. You know, you drive up on the freeway and... uh, and the person in front of you has got the bowls hat on and uh, they're driving at kind of like 70 k's in the 110 zone and you know that their age, the number of their age, is actually higher than the speed that they're driving. Some kind of mathematical equation there. What is it? As you get older, you lose your sense of urgency. And older churches take forever to make decisions. They resist change. They won't take risks. They, they lose their sense of urgency. Number five, as you get older, it's harder to make new friends. And for older churches, it's harder to welcome new people. Um, You end up with your established networks. Everyone knows where they sit. One church I know that if if you were a visitor, and I don't know if they have any, but if you were a visitor and you walked in and you sat in someone's seat, very likely there would be a punch-up, okay? Very likely. Um, But I I go to some churches and um, they say, oh, we've got three or four generations here. In the church, you know, there's grandparents and, and such and such, and then little Johnny, and then my great grandchildren, and then there's, there's these four or five close families, and they love it because it's all together, family, and so on. And and what they don't realise is, as I've talked to people who've tried to join, you know, you'd need a balaclava and a handgun to push your way into that church because everything's all glued up tight, and and it's hard to welcome new people as you get older. It's also interesting, as you get older, it's very difficult to learn a new language. And so for an existing church that's really has been going for a long time, it's hard to welcome people across cultures as well. So new churches can be deliberately set up in terms of welcoming, uh, reaching across culture uh, and so on. Sixth one, as you get older, you get uh, generally, you get neater uh, and more orderly. Um, I've got a photo actually of my dad's um, shadow board for his tools and I forgot to put it into the PowerPoint. You know shadow board you have a silhouette for every one of your tools and they're on a little nail and so on like that. Uh, Dad's got this beautiful cupboard and it, you can see every tool is outlined and, and so on. And retirees lawns are usually kind of beautifully done and, and manicured and so on and, and guess what? As a church goes on longer it's nice to be neat and tidy and that's the only reason I can think of that you can have pastors who are full-time and running churches of 40 people. Really? Let me ask the hard question. If you're you're a pastor and you're running church of 30 or 40 people, 
I, I want to know, you know stick my, I would ask politely, what exactly are you doing with your time? Because I figure a day for a sermon, a day to visit, and a day on Sunday, that leaves three days a week. What are you doing with those other three days? Now, it might be you're doing a massive amount of evangelism and so on. Great. But I suspect what a lot of pastors get caught up in is keeping the shadow board neat, doing all sorts of admin and chasing around and answering emails. And, and, and you just the church just slowly shrinks down to doing just this neat, tidy... There's no mess, there's no risk, there's no... But it's neat. Sixth one, leadership. I can't work out how to fit this one into ageing. You might be able to work it out. Um, As churches go on, leadership gets based on the basis of tenure. Whoever's been there longest ends up, often, whoever's been there longest ends up being kind of most influential, even informal leadership. And so if, if someone new and gifted and keen and with ideas and so on comes in, very hard for them to get their hand on the wheel. Um, in terms of influence and so on. I'll tell you what new churches do. They break up all of that. New churches break up all those kind of networks and and plough up the ground and people with gifts and ability and so on can be recognised, etc. A lot of the churches I've been in have had two different jobs and that is you can um, lead a Bible study group or you can hand out books at the door. If you don't want to do either of those, could you just sit over there and wait for Jesus to come back please? And don't make a noise. Um, whereas I think the scriptures say there are many, many different gifts and abilities that Jesus gives his people. And we just need to take giftedness a bit more seriously, as I, I thought, just to kind of open up. And ch- new churches open up that possibility. Okay, six, eight, eighth one, nearly done. Um, as you get older, uh, you lose your appetite. Well, you should anyway, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, when you're young, you're lean and hungry. I watch my son um, when he's on, on holidays with us and so on. Uh, he only has one meal a day. It starts about 8 a.m. and it finishes about 10 p.m. And he just kind of just eats all day. It just, you know. Um, whereas I've I got to pull up. I can't eat what I used to anymore. And new churches are hungry. New churches are hungry. Remember one young bloke saying, one young pastor said, when we started, we had 28 people. And we weren't financially viable and we really had to go. And we invited people and they chased up people who kind of left the church and kind of drifted off and they brought their friends. And he said, now that we're at 70 people, we probably should plan it again because we stand around and talk to each other. They're just not as hungry. Now, here's the the question. There's, can we get the eight? Yep, well done, Scott. Uh, We've got the eight things on the board there. I want to know, think about it. Are you in an old church? Are you in an old church? Have you loss of vision, loss of flexibility, uh, concern for comfort, loss of urgency, hard to welcome new people, everything's orderly and neat, the leadership's just basically on the basis of who's been around the longest, not hungry. Um, why, do our, um, why do our churches decline? Um, as I said, leadership and a willingness to change. Um, and it's worth asking those hard questions, isn't it? Are we willing to change, to step out of our comfort zone for the good of others? Um, that, uh, that book, I know I'm not pushing management books and so on, but we've got Jim Collins. Yeah, 
This book uh, is a classic in terms of businesses analysing what's going on. Um, Jim Collins, good to great. His, his big thing is this, confront the brutal facts. It's actually had a look at what is really going on. Um, or as he says, facts are better than dreams. Or if you want some real authority that says the same thing, Proverbs 27 verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Uh, we need to ask ourselves, as Christian leaders, in the churches that we're in, what are we, what are we doing? What are our priorities? What do we need to change? How, how do we do that? Um, and I, I've talked, actually, I've talked to lots of men who've been in churches of, say, 50 or 60 people, and they're 50 or 60 people who resist change. You know, they've just got enough strength to have the handbrake pulled on. I say to them, well, if we're really going to be faithful, we're really going to have a go, what could you do? So, well, I can't change their mind. I can't get them to do something different. Well, how about this? A day for Sunday, a day for a sermon, a day for visiting leaves you three days a week. Why not start something new? Why not go and chase a whole new lot of people? Why not go and start a Simply Christianity group? Why not go and do and start something new if you can't change them be flexible and so on um, leadership and growth uh, go together um, and as I said in church life decline is comfortable palliative care is comfortable in church life and if it's comfortable in church life even more so in denominational life um, heard some, I've heard some really encouraging things about um, uh, the Reformed churches today, which is really good. But I'll tell you, some of the other denominations, they are declining inevitably, and, but they decline inevitably and slowly, and not over decades. It'll take a century for some of them to die. Some of the denominations, you couldn't kill them with a stick, huh? but they'll die because um, they won't change. All right. Let me... Um, Let me just finish um, with the words of, uh, of a great hero of mine I wish I'd met, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon. And I guess Spurgeon felt the crisis uh, in his country a century ago, the way that we would uh, in this country. Uh, listen to what Spurgeon says. This is in his lectures, um, his lectures to my students. Are you familiar with that book? It's, it's brilliant. Um, uh, 135 years ago he wrote this he says this we must be done with daydreamings uh, sorry we must be done with daydreams and get to work I believe in eggs but we must get chickens out of them I do not mind how big your egg is it may be an ostrich egg if you like but if there is nothing in it pray clear away the shells we want facts deeds done souls saved it's all very well to write essays, but what souls have you saved from going down to hell? Your excellent management of your school interests me, but how many children have been brought into the church by it? Are sinners converted? To swing to and fro on a five-barred gate is not progress, yet some seem to think so. Brethren, do something, do something, do something. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. While societies and unions are making constitutions, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss and discuss and Satan laughs in his sleeve. It is time we had done planning and sought something to plan. I pray be men of action, all of you, 
and get to, sorry, men of action, uh, all of you, get to work and quit yourselves like men. Um, I think we need to get busy. And I think new churches are one of the key strategies in reaching our nation for Jesus. I'm going to stop there. And uh, we'll have much, much, the next, the next uh, session is really all about Q&A backwards and forwards.